The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shackles, Burl Up, and Lies. I'm your host, Ethan Gilson, and today we're trying something new. As we've done in the previous seven episodes, we're always pushing the boundaries. So today, we have two guests. We have Ed Leahy from Chicago Flyhouse and Eric Rouse from Entertainment Project Services. How are you guys doing today? Great, Ethan. Good. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. This is awesome. Yeah, I... Uh, this is an idea that we've had for a while. All three of us do training uh, as a pretty significant part of what we do. And we talk quite a lot about how we can help each other as trainers and how we can help uh, our students. So I'm excited that we've had this opportunity to get together and talk about training and other things. I'm going to start off with uh, Ed and ask you the first question I ask everyone, which is, who are you? Uh, well, I'm Ed Leahy. I'm the head trainer and cruise ship division manager at Chicago Flyhouse. Um, I have been doing that for about five and a half years. Uh, before that, I was the technical director at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Um, and um, that's that's what I do. <laughs> Excellent. And how about yourself, Mr. Rouse? Yeah. Hey, uh, thanks for having us here. This is a lot of fun. I'm the director of rigging and training for entertainment project services um, in Las Vegas. Um, at EPS, I manage our inspections, training, consult on projects as they need me to, stuff like that. Um, in September of last year, we opened the Entertainment Technical Training Center. It's a standalone building. It's just down the street from our main offices, and we provide in-person and now virtual training classes like a lot of people are doing. Um, we have classroom facilities. We have a custom designed rigging structure, provides hands-on experience in counterweight rigging and arena style rigging. Uh, we can do, you know, out of the can training or custom training, depending on what the needs of the client are. Um, before that, I actually had a little stint a couple of years at Chicago Flyhouse with Ed. Um, really enjoyed that partnership when I was there. Um, and prior to that, I was the technical director at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts and before that, I taught at Penn State University for 10 years, and I've done rigging training now for over 15 years, almost 20 years now. So I'm going to uh, I'm gonna change it up a little. Normally, when I have guests, I'll ask certain questions, and we'll certainly, I'll probably work some of them in there. But one of the things I want to focus on is training, and the pandemic obviously has shifted how we have to do training because the in-person component is no longer an option for a lot of people for the time being. So the first question I'll ask each of you is how did you shift your philosophy of training when this pandemic started and you realized that in-person training was going to be postponed for some time? Who do you want to go first? Either one of you. Doesn't matter. Well, I just started talking. So, so, it was a, it was a, I will admit for me personally, it was kind of an earth shattering moment when I realized, oh, I don't get to go there next week anymore. This isn't, that's not happening. Um, that was a, that was a tough moment. Um, for a while now, I'd been trying to 
improve the training that I was providing and make it more hands-on, right? That was the mentality that I was coming at training from. That was the direction I was coming at training from. Um, in my past, I'd done a lot of just pure classroom training, which I think is still valuable, but I wanted to make it more hands-on. So this started happening and it kind of went against everything that I had been trying to develop and I'd started doing for the classes. And at first I was, you know, I'll be honest. I was like, well, I don't, I don't know how the heck this is going to work anymore. You know, I just, I don't understand. Um, and then started, you know, realizing, well, wait a minute, there's, there's, there's a fair amount of room for this online stuff. Um, I'm probably taking a little bit of a different direction at the online stuff that, than others are. Um, what I'm trying to do with it is make it more, I don't know if interactive is the right word, but using, you know, go, the, the trust session that I just did and the, and the, the aerial rigging one that we're doing now, it's, I'm trying to make it a discussion, right, among, among panelists instead of it just being a, a, a talking head to try and make it a little bit more organic, um, a little bit more, um, make it feel a little bit more real. Um, but it definitely shifted the way I thought about it. Um, I had to, I had to wrap my brain around being able to show stuff in that, in that environment and teach stuff in that environment, which um, was a, just a completely different way of thinking. It was hard. No, certainly. Ed, same question. And one of the things I will add is Chicago Flyhouse before the pandemic had been producing uh, YouTube videos about certain aspects of, of our industry and small little uh, bite-sized clips about a particular topic. Um, do you think that w made it a little easier because you were already kind of doing some online presence type things? Um, did you just expand that or, or was there a shift in your, your concept? Um, well, so we were in an unusual position in that um, I, I was, uh, we, we were mentioning this a little bit before we started recording here. I was sort of accidentally in a position to shift very quickly into an online situation uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, the work that I was utterly overwhelmed with right before all this happened was cruise ship work, the other half of my job at Chicago Flyhouse. And uh, it turns out that uh, all of that, you know, stopped immediately. And so the, uh, the, the kind of shock Eric was talking about, about suddenly I can't go do that. Um, I was supposed to go to a ship, uh, go to a ship in the, um, in the Canary Islands. And the day that I was supposed to leave for the ship, uh, there was, they've discovered the first COVID case in the Canary Islands. And we just said, nope, that's not happening. And so um, what we did instead uh, was immediate, you know, stay at home, everybody's working from home and, and I'm left going, wow, what, am, how do I com contribute to the company either uh, to contribute to Flyhost or anything for the industry? And so we, we sort of immediately said, well, let's, let's try to do something. Let's try to get it out there. And so we just, I just started taking the, the class, my sort of stock two day rigging class and cutting up pieces of it to say, how can I offer this in some bite-sized chunks that, that are going to be, uh, more readily, you know, digestible for folks in, uh, who are stuck at home. Cause that's one thing is that 
you know, in addition to the sort of trying to get hands on, that's another thing I, I come to this from uh, sort of a scholarly place. Like a lot of my learning is a school type learning. It's how I like to learn is, uh, is in a sort of a conceptual way. And it, there, we know that without having this knowledge in our head and our hands, it's not going to, that, you know, the training is missing something if we don't have one of those parts. Um, but for me, the shift to sort of go like just to get the concepts out there and in the immediate term to say, you know what, we're just going to reinforce concepts. We're just going to help people understand the why, uh, because we can't we can't do much. At least we thought we couldn't do much um, in terms of the actual what. And what happened with that is we did a few of those classes. We got a few topics rolling. Um, and uh, fairly early, it was March 24th was the first class, and we just started doing a class every day. Um, and so uh, after a little while, we started saying, well, what else can we do with this? And we realized that because of that experience with the video situation and because, uh, because we had a few resources, we could start to uh, try to actually still get some, it's not hands-on instruction, of course, but some live demonstrations of, of things, instead of just looking at a slideshow or just pictures, um, that we could actually, in real time, answer people's questions while standing in front of a, a fly rail, for example. Um, we were fortunate that one of our trainers at Flyhouse uh, has access to a, a counterweight system. During the pandemic, we were able to get in and, and film, and they happened to have some cameras there that were already set up. So it became real easy to do uh, some things in front of a counterweight system. Now. We haven't figured out how to teach people high steel rigging that way. That would be uh, intense. But um, it, the shift was not too bad uh, because we sort of, instead of thinking about the shift, we just started doing it. Um, and I will say it is hard to have, I, I like to do the same thing that Eric does in terms of having it be a conversation. And when I teach in person, it's very much of a conversation, right? Where I'm encouraging people to ask questions. I'm asking questions of the group and getting a feedback and, at first, when we started doing this, we were using meeting software that made that a little bit easier. We shifted to webinar software where the uh, because it let us essentially uh, reach a wider audience and it made registrations easier. It took a bunch. Uh, it, it sort of stabilized the, the admin of all of it. But the um, one of the big downsides is that there's no group chat in the in the situation we use. And so. Um, we've been struggling to sort of keep that group conversation going because, of course, it's better when people feed off of each other, when the ideas kind of bounce around the room. Um, so that was something that we actually had pretty well early on. It was nice. It helped us build a community of people who were coming to these trainings, um, which we also backed up with a Facebook group and some other things like that. So we, we still have that community, but it's a little bit harder to get that uh, that group discussion going in class with the situation we're using I keep looking for ways to do that. We're uh, we're going to keep experimenting with things to try to make sure we can kind of keep that group feel. But um, in terms of what the shift was, uh, it wasn't. You know, I notice some subtle things. I have to I have to make statements instead of asking questions sometimes, just because it doesn't uh, it doesn't work very well. It slows things down too much. Uh, when, when you have people looking at three screens at home and, and you know that they are doing three things at once, we got to do what we can to keep their attention. Uh, and you would think asking questions would do that. But what I find is that we really just have to kind of drive to the finish. So um, it definitely changes things. But uh, I got to say, I'm, I'm enjoying the opportunity. I, 
I wouldn't have had anything to do if we weren't able to keep training. And, and I tell people in class every day that uh, the couple hours I get to teach every day absolutely is keeping me sane through all of this. Absolutely. Um, so a question I want to ask is kind of a question for all three of us, but um, a lot of the times I'll get people who take one of my trainings and they'll ask about um, other training opportunities. And I tell people I'm very willing to share information about other training opportunities because in my opinion, I can only teach so much. I have a finite knowledge amount uh, that I can share. And I have a style that I teach in a way that I, I articulate the information. And I, I attempt to make it very broad, but there are times where what the, the concept I'm trying to articulate, I can't do in the manner which someone needs to hear it for them to learn it. So I recognize that there are other people out there who might be able to teach that concept in a fashion where it makes it more understandable. Um, Phil Van Hest on, on one of the episodes mentioned that uh, the math equation in, in Jay's book didn't resonate with him, but they did in Delbert's. And it may have just been a difference in the variables that they used. So for you guys... Obviously, there's a business component of what we do as trainers. We are making a living. We are trying to, you know, do that part of it. However, what would you say to those who are like, well, aren't you in competition? Why would you, why would you guys be on a podcast together? Why would we talk about training? Why would you ever tell anyone that there's other training programs out there? Well, I think <laughs> I use this really bizarre analogy for this sometimes. And it, it, of course, revolves around food, which, you know, we all like. But, you know, it's we're like restaurants, you know, and you, you go to different restaurants because you want to have different experiences. You know, you don't go to the same restaurant over and over and over and over. You're going to get tired of it. Um, I know that at this point, I've been doing this a while now. I've had people that have taken my class three or four times, you know, and I actually you know, talk to them like, how can you, how can you sit through this three or four times? They're like, well, first of all, you, you do learn, you do learn something new every time, no matter what class you take, you're always going to learn something new. You're going to hear something that wasn't said before, or the contents change a little bit. And, and they also say, but I also go to do other training with other people to mix it up. I'm not just going to your classes, you know, that's insanity. You know, I'm not going to do that. So it's really that whole aspect of it. Is it competition? Of course it is. You know, are, are you and me and Ed, all competing for the same eyeballs and the, the same butts and seats. We absolutely are. But I think we all also have, as do the, you know, Bill Sapsis and, and Elmer and, and those types of people, they all have the desire to improve the industry and that that kind of supersedes that competition in a way, you know, we still, we still want to make our nut, but we still want to make sure that people are being educated and that they're able to share that information and, and, and have that experience. That's really, to be honest, the most important thing. Um, I don't think, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. You know, would we like to be the one that does it? Sure. But I think the most important thing is people actually getting the experience to begin with. So I have no problem in my classes saying, um, uh, pitching your classes and fly houses classes and, you know, as, as, as a variety thing. I think it's important for people to get different experiences and different points of view. I mean, 
you go to you go to go you go to do a job there's 30 different ways you could do the job right there's 30 different ways you can explain how to do the job well there's 30 different ways you can teach something and like you said finally one of those 30 ways is going to resonate with you so it's important for people to see it in different ways absolutely i i mean for me it it comes to um you know sure there's business but the reality is and we are competing for the same eyeballs and all that sort of thing but it's a big industry and there is not enough training happening, right? There's, there's a lot of training business to go around. Um, and honestly, for me, it, it comes to simply being, uh, you know, if I'm going to call myself a good trainer, then I have to recognize all the information that's out there. Um, I view my work as a trainer largely as being a curator of information. Um, we have said over and over, you hear it in, in other versions of the podcast from other people. Um, you can't know it all. And even if you do know it all, someone's going to think of something new. And so uh, I would like to be the person who knows where the information is. I would like to be the person who can direct you to the thing that's going to help you. Um, and right, if that's that exactly thing, right. Yeah. Yeah. If that thing happens to be Ethan or Eric, much as I, you know, have to distastefully, uh, you know, say, oh, okay, Eric. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> But no, I mean, that's the thing is soon, Eric, as soon as you started doing your trust class with Elmer, uh, we were talking about it in our, in class because, uh, we had people who were doing both and they wanted right. to talk, you know, that's to me moving the conversation. And I said this in class the other day, as I was talking about our Facebook page as a way to keep the conversation moving and somebody in class who is sort of a, they, they sort of talked a lot all the time about everything, uh, said, what conversation, what do you mean? What am I missing? And it's like, no, the conversation, the whole conversation. <laughs> uh, to me, moving the whole conversation forward um, is that's, I mean, it's my job as an employee of Flyhouse, but it's also my responsibility as somebody who has the time and the opportunity and the experience to meet all these great people who know a lot of smart things. Um, it is surprising, I think, and I, I, I've heard both of you guys do this too in class, but it's surprising sometimes in training when we start out by saying, hey, I don't know everything, uh, you know, that especially when you have young people in class, they want to they want to sometimes treat you uh, like the be all and end all. Uh, you've I've heard you both talk about this in other times. They're like, you know, you, they want to be sort of fanboys um, and say that's fine. But you go listen to other perspectives. Uh, one of the things we're doing with our training uh, at Flyhouse is partially because I can't just do it all, but also because different voices are good is that we have a few other trainers and we're starting to work them into our training program to teach the same content that I have taught, but to do it with their voice and using different, uh, different approaches. So that's, to me, that's uh, just part of what doing this well looks like um, that you, we have to acknowledge that, that there are a bunch of smart people out there. And if those smart people have something to add to the conversation, I'm totally open to hearing it, um, including t telling me that I'm wrong. Uh, it has happened in our, you know, we've done a whole bunch of online training. We've done 44 classes so far since we started. Um, and uh, in those classes, I've been corrected, especially by engineers. I, I in particular, don't have the details of engineering down as well as I'd like. Um, and uh, when those guys chime in and give me the specific words for the thing I'm trying to express or correct my approach to talking about something, I love it uh, because I get to learn something too then. You know, that's um, I, that's the best experience for me. So 
it, you know, competition is a piece of it, but I generally just sort of say, you know what, we're all doing okay. We're all getting uh, the eyeballs and the, and the attendees and things. And so I'd rather just be a really great trainer and let that sort of attract people as they will. Uh, and it, it certainly has, you know, that same idea of people in the classes we've done, we, I have a bunch of, uh, you know, many, many years in IOTC riggers who are coming for ETCP credit or coming uh, just because they want to hear the stuff new again and hear it in a different voice. I, I think that that is exactly what we want to be promoting for the training, uh, for the idea of training across the industry. Absolutely. Uh, I've taken multiple times. I've, I've sat in uh, small training sessions that you guys have done. And part of it is, as, as you guys have both mentioned, my interest in learning something new. Um, there are parts of the industry that I, I don't spend a lot of time in. For instance, and I, I talk about this when I do trainings, I haven't been on steel in quite a few years. Um, I don't build bridles every day, so I'm not as crisp at it. And I rely on the people in my class who might work in an arena say, hey, do you have an opinion about this? What can we learn together from the group? I don't do a lot of performer flying. Eric, you have a lot of experience with that. So I will go and listen to you talk about stuff like that. But then on the flip side, we also are a resource to each other that uh, Eric was teaching a session at uh, NAM at the beginning of this year. And I was sitting in there and there's some, someone asked a question and he wasn't quite sure about the answer. But uh, Bill and I were in the room and he said, hey, what do you guys think? And it's just it's a good resource and an idea of, again, not a single person knows everything. But as instructors, we know we have the connections to be able to ask the questions to the people who might know the answer. And and we, as Ed said, work as a facilitator of that information. Yeah, I think that's the that's honestly the best way to look at it. I mean, no one likes a know it all. You know, and I think trying to pretend to be that know-it-all, I think automatically will, will, people will be disillusioned very quickly. So, you know, I personally enjoy it when I have people like you and, and Bill um, in the class. You know, I, I like that. You know, I taught a class at Silver State several years ago now. It's been a while. But Roy Bickle was in the class. You know, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast will know who Roy Bickle is. You know, he's one of the legends. And the funny thing was I didn't know who he was when he was sitting there in the front row. I had, I'd never met him before. Um, and then he introduced himself over lunch and I was like, Oh wow. Okay. Um, now I'm a little nervous, but what, what was great was, okay, now I have him as a resource. And, and, and there were times when I had something that I wasn't sure about and he would jump in and, and it was great. It was fantastic. You know, I, I love that stuff. I love, I love that relationship. Well, and it, we can carry it forward too. So, um, there's a, uh, Ethan, I've heard in, uh, I forget which former podcast it was, which which earlier podcast. Um, but there has been some conversation about how hard it is to teach high steel riggers to do high steel rigging uh, and how to make that a, a hands-on training. Um, and there, we uh, Eric had an idea when he was working with us, and we the two of us developed it together and made this uh, very cool class where we go teach high steel riggers. Um, but we don't necessarily do the teaching. We lay out the concepts and the class is, uh, it requires that 
we have an arena to practice in, which is part of it. But the other thing it requires is that the old folks who work in that arena, old, the experienced people, the ones who are already high steel riggers and the go-to workers in those spaces, they have to be present for the practical parts of the class and ideally for all the class. But um, so that what's happening is that when we teach that class, um, it is, uh, it, we're, again, we're kind of curating the knowledge. We're sort of making sure that uh, everything is being said, but it's being said by the experienced riggers in that venue so that when they, uh, when, when you have to take it back to the work later on, uh, and you have those people who are in class, they're not saying, well, so-and-so told me I have to do it this way. And then the person who does it every day in that space has to correct them. This way, they're learning not just how it is in general or what the concept should be, but how it is in their venue where they work. Um, and sort of, you know, using that, uh, that expertise that's already there um, makes a ton of sense, you know. Uh, in that situation, to me, it may, it's the only thing that makes sense is to get, uh, you know, to if, if you're going to teach people where the rubber meets the road, then you got to have the other other workers there who already are doing it. So um, that was a fantastic idea. And as I said, I credit Eric for thinking of it. But we've had a, a fair number of uh, successful versions of that class at this point, And I, I love the model of it. I want to keep it going because it's really uh, it's really effective uh, and it and it puts the learning right where it needs to be. And the, the funny thing is going, you know, continuing that thought is, you know, I've, I've been gone from, from Playhouse for almost, I don't know, six months now, whatever it is. And um, Ed and I still talk every now and then about, you know, maybe partnering and doing those classes again, you know? So, I mean, there's still that conversation of, you know, even though we are competitors, you know, again, we, we enjoy working together. We enjoy helping people get that information and we know how to guide it. So it's still, you know, it's still one of those things that we chat every now and then it's like, oh, maybe we could do one of those together again. You know, why not? Absolutely. So one of the questions that I will normally ask people is about, do they have a favorite tool or a widget or a product that just come out that they're just really enamored with and is fun? I'm going to use the basis of that question to ask a question of each of you, which is, is there a tool or a widget that you have started using recently or maybe not so recently? And I don't want to limit this to just how we're teaching in the pandemic period, but is there a tool that you've been using for teaching or around teaching that you're like, this thing is great. I just incorporated this. For me, for a while, it's been my my portable destructive test bench because, let's admit it, we all like to break stuff. Um, and it's fun to do that and show people material strength. Um, so is there something like that for each one of you? And if I stole it by saying a, a test bench, then <laughs> cer certainly describe yours. And, and you know, mine's, mine's pretty low tech, but yeah, um, yeah let's I, start um... with you, Eric. I used to drag around the, 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 what I called the break-o-matic and it got a little cumbersome. I had a small one that I made for LDI several years ago. Um, I honestly don't know what happened to it. I actually, I don't know how you lose these things, but I lost it. I don't, I don't know where it, where it went. Um, what, one of the silly things that I use for trainings that has been really successful is, and they're dirt cheap and they work really well for a, for a scale model version is digital, luggage weight, uh, luggage uh, scales um, that you can get on Amazon for like 10, 12 bucks. 
you know, they, they weigh up to 60, 70, or they can weigh up to 60, 70, maybe 100 pounds. So you can set up a small little bridal scenario with, uh, with, with cable in a, in, a, in a space, put a 50-pound sandbag, and you can see the loads on the, on the, uh, on the scales without having to, to purchase a really expensive uh, load cell system. And, you know, they're really light and portable, and I, I go through those like, like, uh, like, like water. That, those are great, yeah. Hmm. I don't know that I have anything. I, I, you know, my trusty laptop, my, my trusty whiteboard, uh, and, um, and, uh, my 50 pound exactly bag of crap that I haul around, uh, with samples of, of broken hardware and things, um, is pretty much the way I do it when I'm, when I'm actually live in person. I think the thing that has been the most significant help for me, uh, over the last couple of years actually has been, um, that we were able to at Flyhouse uh, dedicate a room to become. Uh, it was meant to be our, our filming studio for doing the the YouTube videos we do. And as we continue to work, we are starting to outfit that studio a little bit more um, with more stuff to be able to do some kind of cool testing and some kind of cool videos. I wish we could haul it around. Uh, and and the idea of something portable is certainly an attractive one. Um, we haven't settled on anything that we like yet, but um, having a dedicated space to prepare those videos, and it has turned out to become a testing lab for virtually everything. We, we do proof testing of our parts there. We do um, we do a bunch of other things in that space, but having a dedicated space where we, the only trick is you kind of have to say anything that goes into that room never comes out of it, right? Uh, because uh, any piece of hardware, any piece of rope or cable or anything, uh, if it's in that room, it's likely been, you know, yanked on somehow. And so uh, having that dedicated space has been fantastic uh, to be able to start to explore, like, what can we do with video? What else can we show? Um, as I've been talking to all these people doing our online training, people have come up with all kinds of things of, uh, you know, stuff that we should be comparing or breaking or whatever. Um, and it, you know, it's ideas for videos and things for years in the future. Um, but having that dedicated space and having a little bit of budget to outfit it, um, is very cool. And we, we use that space for live camera shots. Now, when we do, um, some of our classes where we do some live breaking, we, uh, it, it's fantastic. I wish I had a, a comprehensive camera set up and a video switcher and all kinds of things. Um, but it's still have just having a room set aside has been fantastic. Yeah. I didn't think of it in that, in that sense, you know, I was thinking more of the, the, the traveling gear, but obviously, and you know, we opened, we did a class during LDI and then uh, Christmas and then this started happening. So we haven't had a chance to really ramp things back up, but having like Ed saying, having that dedicated space is pretty amazing. You know, having a structure there that people can climb and, set points and, you know, having a, a truss system there from reliable design, a self-climbing truss and having motion labs gear that they donated, you know, load cells and, and all that stuff. It's a, it's a huge resource. Um, so hopefully when we come out of this, um, we'll be able to start using it again so that people can, you know, I, I think, I think we would all agree that, and Ben Bryan talked about it really well on, on, on the podcast that he was on, you know, learning on the fly. You know, and there's there's obviously great value to learning on the fly, but being able to use some of those toys and being in some of those situations in a controlled environment, I think in terms of just pure education and pure training is really valuable. 
Um, so having that space to be able to do that stuff is uh, pretty awesome. Well, yeah, Ben, I, when he was talking about that, it was, he was talking about how, uh, being, you know, sitting on a truss five feet off the floor is not the same as doing high steel rigging. And of course it isn't, but, uh, what uh, it made me think about again, that high steel class where one of the things we find is that you have to, uh, being able to put somebody out there in a low stress situation where there isn't a deadline, there isn't a, a job that has to get done, uh, is pretty critical. And, and that's, I think that space that you have there, Eric, is going to be fantastic for that because, um, getting some kind of experience up even a little bit, and we know the weights don't work out right and all that, but um, having some sense of how you're going to do up in the air, how you're going to do when you have a bunch of things to think about. We see it with rope access too, right? Everybody understands what they're supposed to do with rope access. And when you put them on the ropes, they stop, their brain stops for, you know, until they practice it a few times um, because of the extra stress on your body. And of course that's true in a lot of rigging situations. So I think that that kind of thing uh, is phenomenal and, and uh, having that kind of space to work in is, is definitely an important component of training. I think a, a good analogy that I just thought of is look at uh, gymnastics, you know, working the beam in gymnastics. You don't start on the beam that's four feet off of the ground. You start on a, you know, beam that's six inches off the ground and you learn the body mechanics of staying on that small surface. And it's the same concept. We start, you know, and Phil talked about this actually being on an I-beam versus a truss so that you can learn about, you know, standing on the flanges and, and different components that, of, of that. Um, and just learning what's comfortable for you so that when you are doing it at height, you're not thinking about that part. You're focusing on the important parts like not dropping stuff, um, right. yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, Eric, who have some of the mentors for you been? And 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 it can be either in a training sense uh, or just overall in your journey within the industry. Oh wow! Um, I always default to to three or four people that have really made a huge difference um, for me. One one was definitely one of the first ones to really really affect me was Rick Gray. Um, Rick Gray is the head of entertainment at the win. And actually, I don't even know if that's his, his real title. He's a, he's a big shot there, put it that way. And he used to be my professor at Penn state, um, when I was going there for school and he had left to go build the O theater. He was the project manager for the theater. Um, and he was a person when I came into school that he was very honest with me. He's like, you're terrible. You, you you really suck at this and you need to get better. And he was one of those people that did not sugarcoat it and made me push myself to, to improve, um, and to, you know, take that on myself to do. And then once I started working professionally, Joe McGeo at Foy was a huge influence, um, in my life in terms of being meticulous, being thorough, um, realizing what, what's important and how to emphasize things. Um, he was, he was huge, uh, with that and, and trusting me to run the shop when he, he took a hiatus to go do some other stuff for a little while. And so that was, that was big, um, for me. And then when I started working for Cirque, um, David Shabira was, was my boss there and he, he entrusted me with a lot of big stuff and he didn't micromanage me. He let me take it and run with it. And, and, uh, it, you know, having, having the trust of those people 
And now in retrospect, you know, they're all peers in the industry and some are, some are actually only one of that list is retired and the others are still working. And, and now, you know, I'm on meetings with them working on projects, you know, I'm, I'm at their level and I, I will always, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 50 year, this year and I'll always feel like I'm the young guy in the room that I'm the, I'm the young, the whippersnapper, the, the new guy. And, and I realize I'm not anymore, but that's kind of how I feel. And these days, another, honestly, another big influence for me is, uh, you know, Bill Sapsis, um, having, having him around um, and we've become a lot closer in the last uh, five, seven, eight years. Um, it's, it's been really great talking to him about training, talking to him about, you know, he and, he and Chris Harris at, at Sapsis really helped me with, with my inspection skills. And I could do this forever. You know, I could, I could do this forever, but really in terms of the, the main people, those are probably the main, the main four that at this point have, have really influenced me the most. How about you, Ed? Well, for me, it's a, it's kind of a different story because, uh, of how I come to this. Um, that I started my career as a high school teacher uh, and a middle school teacher, and I got uh, I got fed up with not feeling like I knew enough to be teaching these kids. So I went to graduate school at the University of Delaware, the professional theater training program, which unfortunately is a program that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, during the 2008 sort of financial crisis, um, they essentially had just started a theater attached to that program, a, a repertory theater. And uh, when faced with not having enough budget for one or the other, um, they basically kept the theater going and had to retire the, the education program, um, which is really a shame because that experience, um, that that's what set me on the path. And there are a number of, of people in that program but uh, that, that were influential, but the program itself as a whole really did it um, because it was a program that focused on not just on learning skills, but uh, on learning soft skills specifically about learning how to learn, about learning how to overcome confidence issues. Um, to me, becoming a trainer is one of the strangest confidence games in the world um, because you have to be uh, you have to be confident that you know what you're talking about and that you can hold a room and that you can keep people's attention, while at the same time also recognizing what we were talking about before that there's a good chance there's people in the room who know a lot more than you do. And it, there is uh, e ego in our game is a really weird thing. You have to have it, but you also have to stick it in your pocket. Um, and so I think I started learning those skills when I was in this grad school program um, and really learning how to, um, how to move any conversation forward, right? How to be a person in our industry who uh, by your reaction to things and by your, you know, how you approach things is going to move, move it forward, whatever it is, and uh, not get hung up on um, this sort of emotional stuff that can slow us down uh, or just obstruct, you know, progress. So um, that in terms of a basis, a place to start, that experience was fantastic. And it, it's, um, you know, I, I really, that put me on a path, but then um Instead of, uh, as Eric did, kind of working all, all over the nationally known industry, what I did is I went and worked at one theater for 11 years and really kind of kept my head down. It was an overwhelming job when I started doing it, um, and uh, I didn't have time to be part of the national conversation. I didn't have time to go to USITT. I didn't have time to meet all the people um, that, we, uh, that we consider to be the sort of heart of the industry. And so... Um, I had to kind of rely on those skills I built in grad school to pick up what I could learning wise and, and, and be largely self-taught um, until I went to Flyhouse. And so 
Flathouse was sort of, then I had to consciously step into that national conversation because we were trying to sell training across a national audience and, and indeed the world. We train all over the world. Um, and so I, this was a time where the, it's going to embarrass Eric perhaps, but the other person who was a, of great influence for me was Eric. Because when uh, he came to work with us at Flyhouse, it was a way to get to get a get to take advantage of some of the the great many connections he has with people and all the time he's had doing it. And so, um, being able to see what it looks like to to be part of that national conversation and get introduced to a lot of people, um, and really see what it looks like to balance confidence and uh, and competence uh, with that ability to. Uh, also accept what's happening in class and, and sort of take the, the input from everybody. Um, I really came into my own as a trainer through working with Eric. So uh, I appreciate that, Eric. I don't know if I've ever said that to you before. So um, No, man, I, I appreciate that a lot. Really do. Thank you. It means a lot. Um, so that's it. Like there's, uh, for me, I, I had a kind of an insular career until, uh, until I came to Fly House. And now I'm having great fun getting to know all of the other uh, names in the industry and, and the people who've who've had some influence that I never really got to rub elbows with before. So um, I look forward to finding more mentors. I think uh, in the when when I asked the question to Bill Sapsis in the last episode, he had some really good answers, um, and it made me think that. I believe people tend to think that a mentor is someone who is older than you. Um, and it made me think about, like you just mentioned, Ed, Eric being a mentor for you, that you can have people who are your peers that can be mentors to you. Um, it, you know, you shouldn't limit yourself to saying, Oh, who's, who's, you know, who's the old guy who is passing the torch. That's not necessarily what it means. Um, but it's, it's great to see, how people can influence others in a positive manner. Um, I think one of the things I've learned from asking this question of people is, is it's not just one person. You learn things from a whole multitude of people, and, and then you figure out how to incorporate those things into what you're doing. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great point. And actually, you know, you made me think about that. In, I'd never really thought of it in that, in that way before. But, you know, like, for example... Um, you know, I work for, for Entertainment Project Services, EPS, and it was founded by Stephen Michaelman. And he's an old friend of mine, and we've known each other for years. We went to school together. Um, but now I'm seeing him as a, you know, an employer, a boss. And and he's brilliant on the business side of, of the end of the business that we're in. So it's been really amazing to learn from him. And, you know, we're roughly the same age. He's maybe a year older than me, but you're right. I mean, you can... You can look at it that way too, and and there there is the opportunity for mentorship from a from a peer. You're absolutely right. I think it's important that we note that Eric is older than me. Uh, you know, I just like to poke him with that a little bit. But um, you know, the other thing is, uh, I, I I wanted to mention uh, Mark Whitavine, the owner of Flyhouse, because he's another person who, um, in, in the kind of in the same way uh, that Eric was talking about Stephen Michaelman. He has definitely helped me. You know, I worked in a nonprofit theater situation and making the switch to a for-profit uh, mindset, sort of understanding the way that you have to work 
uh, in a vendor situation instead of in a theater situation, but then also really getting free reign to try to develop this training and, and, and make it as much as it can be and having support to do that, uh, as well as a, a certain level of uh, obvious confidence in my ability to do it, uh, has also been really helpful and, and really um, just a fantastic um, you know, platform to sort of uh, have a jumping off point to make the, the Flyhouse training program the best that it can be and, and to uh, develop my own skills to the best they can be. Uh, I don't think I would have, I, I wouldn't have that opportunity without uh, giving him some credit. So I want to make sure I say that. So one of the things that, again, talking with Bill Saps is about was consistency in training. We see in other industries uh, that training programs um have a requirement, certain topics they have to teach uh, in order for, you know, for them to be part of an association or something. Um, what are What is your each of yours opinion about the consistency of subject matter in teaching? What are the pros and cons about it? Because as we've mentioned, each instructor has a different style and there are benefits to that. On the flip side, the topic, the subject matter, which each course may teach, um, may, uh, be all over the place. So for instance, variables for math equations, we've talked about, do we want to start using the same terms to make sure we're talking about the same thing? What are some of the pros and cons of that consistency across training? I think that, uh, Things, you know, when we teach uh, any, anything that Flyhouse puts out is going to use the variables that are on the ETCP math sheet, um, which for better or for worse, uh, becomes a bit of a standard across the industry um, simply by its very existence. Um, I think that for me, I'm going to pull, I try to pull from, well, I use the ETCP topic lists for tests just because it's a fairly comprehensive uh, look at what uh, what a rigger should know, right? And, the, and, the, and it's been put together by a bunch of smart people in the industry, uh, yourself included, Ethan and Eric, actually. You're both SMEs. Eric, are you still an SME? Uh, but uh, the... Uh, so... Yes, I me, am. Sorry, I was muted. I had a Zoom <laughs> failure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to me, there are... There are some, uh, there are certainly benefits to stabilizing it, uh, or you know, there are places that it's already been stabilized that we can use to um, to figure out whether we're sort of on the right track training wise. Um, but uh, I also think, you know, as we said, I think judgment and um, and and the the experience of the trainer matters. You know, that uh, part of what we part of the, I think one of the bigger things is how much theory do you teach versus how much practice do you teach? Um, and coming up with a correct balance for that is really dependent on the audience you're talking to. Um, if you're talking to a group of high school kids versus talking to a bunch of uh, IATSE riggers, there's going to be a different standard for that. So I think there has to be some flexibility. Um, but I think that uh, we have some pretty good resources to s sort of pull from. The other place that I pull from is from uh, ESTA ANSI standards, right? What uh, what knowledge is in those that, that should be part of it? And I always 
uh, I'm always going to bend back to those things, right? Because we have some written documentation about what good knowledge looks like in our industry. Um, I'm always going to go back to those things, at least as a baseline. But then, of course, there's always details. Um, so, Eric, what do you say about that? Um, sorry, I had a sneeze coming, so I decided to mute myself there. Um, I ag I agree with most of that. I so, you know, we we all use the the ANSI standards, the OSHA codes in our classes, and and you know, actually, we are all starting to get into you know more fall protection training, and there are ANSI requirements for fall protection training. You know what what you need to provide, roughly laid out, not not totally precise, but basics, right? How often you should train, things like that. I, I think that there is definitely room um, for standardization of the training that we do. I think we have to be careful that it doesn't um, eliminate the variety, right? So I think we have to be careful with that. And I don't think it would, because even though you may have to teach the same highlights, you're going to teach those highlights in different ways, and you're going to approach it from different angles. Um, but I think one thing that would we would benefit from is... You know, if we go back to ETCP, ETCP is a fantastic program, but we all realize that not every rigger is going to take that ETCP exam. You're going to have a lot of people that are going to come try and work for you or get on a call that don't have that certification. So it would be really nice to know, um, oh, I took a class with Ed, right? So, okay, well, if you took that class, then I know you learned these things. So I know that you can put that together with that and you can, and you can do this. You know, if there was some sort of, of path like that where we standardized it in such a way that a basic class may be taught this, an intermediate class may be taught that. You know, that type of thing, I think, is a is a very interesting concept. Well, it, you know, they tried that a little bit with the ESET program uh, to try to sort of standardize what, what's the knowledge that a worker entering the industry should have. Uh, and having, I worked on that a little bit, and um, what, what had the reason that ESET seems to be always almost on top of things, and I, I don't want to badmouth the program, but they have been working for a while to try to get that into the general conversation. Um, and I think that the problems they run into with it are that uh, finding the exact window of, you know, what is a what does a young rigger need to know? What does a, a person on their first day need to know? Uh, it's very hard to separate that from what a person on the first day of their fifth year needs to know and what a person needs to know on the first day of their 15th year. Um, there, It's all kind of a, a continuum. And I think that there's been a lot of trouble nailing down what that should be. Um, because in addition to standardizing the topics, that part's pretty easy. We go, these are the things we should talk about. But how far do you take them, right? We know that uh, when we talk to maybe high school students or very, very early riggers, we're going to give them more black and white kind of a rule, right? We're going to say, never do this, always do this. And what we find out is that most of those rules, the more you learn, most of those rules are in fact continuums of risk. Uh, and so we, it, it's dependent on the situation and there is a lot of gray area to move around in those things, um, but only if you have a really solid knowledge. And, and so trying to figure out where the, you know, the, what the exact boundaries of the understanding should be, I think is a it's a daunting idea. Uh, it's a, va uh, it's a good idea. I think it'd be great if we could do it. Uh, I think that the more we try to do it, the more we're going to find that it's very hard. Yeah. So. I, I also think that, cause I was involved with ESET 
like you had to, you know, from the beginning. Um, and I think it's a good program. And I think the, 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 uh, the concept is really good where I think part of the, the miss is, is I think to make this concept successful, there has to be some buy-in from the industry, right? I think you need to approach the Kish riggings and the Reed riggings and those types of companies and the, the Cirques and the Disney's and say, Hey, what do you want from a technician? You know, when you have to fill a crew, what do you want someone to know? What do you want the basics to be and how, you know, what are the important things? I think we need to get them involved in that conversation. Also, if there's no, if there's no buy-in from the industry, it's like ETCP, right? If there's no buy-in from the industry, I think it's a harder path. So I think starting with some buy-in from the industry would be really important too. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's certainly a challenge um, to kind of, as you said, figure out the content aspect of it. It is something that we talked about. Is there a path that we, and I know this is not a popular topic with some people at ESTA, is there a path that eventually we have a tiered ETCP program where a, you have different levels for your different skill sets? That being said, there are other industries that do this. We know it's possible. We just got to figure out the way that we implement it within our industry. And again, it's through the subject matter experts figuring out of, okay, you know, when we develop the test, we talk about what is the minimum qualified person? What is their knowledge base to be minimally qualified to have that certification? So if it was, you know, level one is the guy who's anywhere from this is his first day to the, you know, within three years, what are the skills we think that person should have to have this certification and build from there? The downside is it's very expensive to develop these tests and we're already doing it on a volunteer basis, but there are still a lot of expenses with it. And despite the fact that we like to think that we're a huge market, we're not. We're actually relatively small. We're high visibility and, and high dollar value. But in terms of numbers of people, it, we don't compete with a lot of other industry in terms of that aspect. But I think but I that... Think Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, Ethan, but I yeah, think absolutely. one way to I think another way to look at that is perhaps, and I'm not I'm not, I'm not saying that this is this is the way to go, but perhaps that tiered system doesn't need to be a certification, right? Perhaps it's we're teaching people to a standard, right? So just like we do when we do fall protection training, right? It's not a you're not certifying someone; you're teaching to a standard. Right, and you're 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 giving them information based off of a, a you know certain information that you're supposed to supply. So maybe there's a way of looking at it that way, which does, in a way, kind of streamline and, and streamline and simplify the process a little bit. It's just a slightly different way of thinking. Maybe it's the right way, maybe it's not. But I think it's one way we should consider looking at it. Absolutely. I mean, that's the way the fall protection world works, right? Is that you have a, a standard of knowledge for what say a competent person looks like, um, but training from lots of different places that follow that standard of knowledge. Um, I think it certainly could be a, a way forward. Um, it is it is sort of what they were going for with ESET in terms of a certificate instead of a certification. Um, obviously the architecture to maintain certifications at different levels gets to be pretty unwieldy. Um, 
but that idea of a certificate on this day, I knew these things because I studied a certain curriculum and I took a test. Um, that is certainly a more workable path. I think the problems we get into then are how do you, you know, is it a practical test? Is it, you know, how do we, you know, it, it winds up, I think, coming to the providers then about what, what's the quality level of the instruction that goes along with that information. Um, because what we've seen from ESET is that if you try to structure a test that is a part of a national program, that it's pretty unwieldy, um, that, that it just, it's expensive and it's time consuming. And, and so instead having the providers make up a test for their provided service, the way that you do with a fall protection situation um, is more workable, but then you're open to what is the quality level of the provider. So uh, interesting questions. I think that they definitely bear consideration moving forward. Yeah. Again, another question that I normally ask my guests and I'll, I'll shift it a little for, for us today as an instructor, what is one of your biggest fears as an instructor? Isn't that the same for all of us, which is looking like we don't know what we're talking about? <laughs> you know, I certainly think that's true. I, this is going to sound really weird, but I think one of my, one of my biggest fears is getting a classroom of people or a bunch of people together that are just not interested in learning. You know, I can look stupid. I don't mind looking stupid. I, you know, if I, if you catch me and I'm wrong, fine, I'm wrong. I'll, I'll fess up to that. That's fine. But what I, what I, what really makes me crazy is, is getting folks that are convinced that they know everything and sit there with their arms crossed and just don't want to. That is an instructor. It, it's, it's um, disheartening. You know, because even even if you're I mean, I've taught classes at local one, you know, arguably the the the, the most, you know, experienced um, in terms of variety of venues, the you know, one of the, the, the top locals in the country. And these people know their craft. They know their craft. There is no two ways about it. But even on those classes, I have people that have been doing it for 30, 40 years come up and say, hey, I learned some new stuff today. You know, I've been doing this. I'm the head carpenter here. I did this show. I've done these runs on Broadway, but I learned something today. And my greatest fear is having those people sit there and go, I didn't learn a damn thing today. That is that is probably, as an instructor, my, my greatest fear. I always want the people to get something out of it. That is That is what I want. Yeah, that's certainly up there. Although I think like you, I've had the same experience that I'll see people in class and go, whoa, that, I, I don't know if I have anything to, to offer that person. Um, and in fact, then get sometimes those are the most effusive people about, I really love this. I hadn't thought about looking at it the way you presented it. I hadn't, uh, I, I picked up some new knowledge and I really enjoyed sharing my knowledge. Because again, if you know those people are in class, you pivot to those folks uh, when you, when you want to back up an idea or say, you know, that's, that's a big piece of it. Um, and uh, I think I'm always surprised that that we get I, I tend to get I'm, I'm more surprised by the fact that people don't have that reaction. Um, and so that that's certainly a fear. You're right. You can't do anything with those people if they already think they know it. Then you go, what are you doing sitting here? Go outside and play, um, you know. But uh, the other fear I think that comes in for me 
a little bit is, uh, you know, Eric said, I, I will admit when I'm wrong. And, and I guess that that's a knee jerk fear, you know, of being wrong. What I worry about more is the idea that I say something that is either unclear or misinterpreted and someone takes that out into the world and hurts themselves with it. Um, I certainly want to endeavor always to make sure that, uh, you know, even as we're going and it's tough in, in the online situation because you don't get the kind of instant feedback you do in a classroom um, to make sure that, that the information is landing the way you think it is. Uh, and we circle back and try to make sure people ask questions and things like that. But um, sort of, you know, you create this thing and send it out into the world and you just hope that nothing bad happens as a result. I think it's important for people to understand, and, I, and I'll mention this when I do trainings, that rigging is not black and white. There are components that might be black and white. This is the breaking strength or the working load limit of this piece of hardware. This is the equation for figuring out this math problem uh, for this force. But a significant portion of rigging is risk assessment and looking at whether or not the uh, potential of failure and the result of that failure are something that you can mitigate or deal with versus not. And it can be difficult because I can teach you principles, but if you take those out into the, the, the real world and you do a risk assessment and you don't apply them correctly or you apply them differently or you interpret them differently, you may not get the proper result. Um, which is why a lot of us have liability releases. Our attorneys say, hey, you should do this. On the flip side, there's the idea of, hey, I want to teach people well enough that they, you know, they understand that if they don't feel right about something, to walk away from the situation. So certainly understanding that fear. It's funny, Ed, you talked about having people in your class that you didn't think uh, could learn something. I taught a class a few years ago, uh, a roof school, and I think... It was the same class that yourself, Ed, were in, as well as some other gentlemen who were sitting behind you and uh, another well-known rigger who uh, I mentioned with the Bill Sepsis episode, a story about a failure in Las Vegas of a ground support system. And he was on that 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 project. And, and said, yeah, you, you told the story accurately. So it was an interesting group of people. But the gentleman who were sitting behind you, Ed, within the first few minutes said, oh, you know, our employer's making us be here. We're not going to learn anything. And like you said, Eric, it was like, oh, you know, should I be fearful? I took that as a personal challenge. And I said, right. all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and what was rewarding for me, I always say this, what you like Ed said earlier, we all have ego. There is a certain part of us that likes getting in front of a group of people and talking and having them focus on us. But what I really enjoy as an instructor is teaching a concept, seeing someone who may have been having a hard time understanding it, and then working with them to explain it a different way. And then that light bulb goes off right. and they get it. And it's usually with the math. I freely admit, I joke with everyone. One of the running jokes on my Facebook page is every time I do a training, I post a picture of math time and everyone's looking down. And I'm like, this is usually the part where everyone starts hating me if they haven't done so already. Um, but you see that light bulb go off and you go, yes, they got it. And 
this particular class was two days and maybe three quarters of the way through day one, the two guys who are, oh, we're not going to learn anything. They started getting engaged. They started saying, but what about this? And they started having discussions. And all of a sudden they went from arms folded to writing notes and leaning forward and being right. involved in the process. Yeah, that's and great. That, that made the whole experience better. It is a rush, and it, and it actually makes the rest of the instruction go better. You know, that right. uh, just like a comedian can have a, a good night with a room or a bad night with a room. I taught a class yesterday where I didn't get through all the material because they wouldn't stop asking me questions, but it was fantastic because it was engagement. Like, we, like it doesn't happen very often, um, especially online where most people are typing their questions and things. Um, it's such a rush when you get a group of people who buy in, and, and that idea of, like, if you win a group over, oh, it's awesome. Yeah, I freely admit that I can get up in front of a group of people for two or three days and talk for eight hours a day nonstop. That is not a challenge for me. But a dialogue, people asking questions, going down rabbit holes sometimes, talking about stuff. Again, our job as an instructor is to facilitate your learning. Well, if the group's learning needs to go in some place that I wasn't planning, because that's where their knowledge base needs to go, fine. Um, we all learn together. And, and, and again, I've mentioned several times people learn skills to apply in their rigging knowledge. I learn skills to apply in my teaching knowledge and how do I communicate things. It's funny. When I first started teaching uh, load distribution, I was using Harry Donovan's concept of torque. Um, and it was a tough teach. People, I'd say 50% of the people didn't get it immediately. And one day I was talking with Jeff Reeder and, and Daniel Clark and we we're talking about it. I was like, man, I, I got to change how I'm teaching this. There's got to be a better way. And Daniel was like, mm, well, and, and this is where for me, the joke of we all love whiteboards as instructors. So yeah. we started drawing on the whiteboard and we're like, well, what if you did it this way? And we're like, oh, that's it. And now that's the way I, I teach it. And it's so much simplified and works really well. But it was other people teaching that I was able to use that resource and say, how do I get better at my craft and doing that um, component of it? Well, that's, you know, the math, you talk about the math as a thing. And I, I always go to great lengths to make people be comfortable about the math or to not feel threatened by it because they, um, you know, some people, they were told when they were through, you know, in third grade, they go, you're bad at this. And you're always going to be bad at it. And they believe it. They, they take that with them. And, and you hear people say, I'm bad at math. You go, well, you're probably not. You've just talked yourself into being bad at math. And uh, one of the first things uh, that, that I found, like what you're talking about with uh, the, the beam loading, is, um, was a way to explain bridal math. I found it posted from a high school teacher um, and it, it turns out to be a really approachable way to do it. Uh, it's longer than sort of using Harry's big formulas, but Harry's big formulas scare the hell out of people. Um, and so it's a way to sort of use very simple math and very uh, kind of uh, approachable steps to take one piece of information and build on it to the next thing. Um, it's, it's not rocket science. It's actually really, really simple. Um, but I've had people just say, I've, 
I've never understood this like that before. I never got it. And now you finally got it. And it, as you say, that's just awesome. When, when, when you see somebody finally, I mean, I had somebody tell me that, you know, they've been 25 years in the business and they never got it until they, they understood it uh, this way. And you go, that's incredible. I love that. That'll, that'll keep me going for a week. Uh, just that one idea, you know, that one success story. So. I don't know why this, this conversation reminds me of this, but so Ed and I taught, taught together for a while and Ed and I have very different styles. You know, I am, I am the rabbit hole king. If there is a topic that I can talk about for 15 minutes with someone that, that really only needs two minutes, I'm, I'm all over it. I'll, I'll, you know, we'll go there. And, uh, Ed was teaching a class in Chicago and I was just kind of there as support and, and he had to leave a little early this one day. And, and he's like, we have 15 slides left, you know, and then I'll pick up here tomorrow. And I was like, great. And I taught the last hour and a half of the class. And, uh, I think what we got through two slides, Ed, three slides and Ed comes in the next day. He's like, what the heck did you talk about? And I was like, they had questions. We went places. I don't know. This is how I work. So, but it's really funny. You know, we both get the same place eventually. It's just a slightly different path, you know? Well, and that was a that was a reading the room thing. I remember that class, and that was kind of a dead class, um, at least when I was doing it, because I I wasn't reading the room very well, right? That was I was sort of driving through the content when we should have been stopping more or like asking more questions to pull them in, because that was a little bit of a of a. There was at least one guy there who was definitely sitting there with his arms crossed, uh, sort of testing us, um, and we won that guy over. But uh, it. It, it was that idea, like that was a, I, I look back on that class and go, oh, I should have done that better. Um, and uh, and that's it. Eric unlocked uh, the key to those people, which was getting them to talk about their stuff. Um, and and it, it pulled that pulled them in. Um, sometimes that's not it, right? Sometimes people really want it spoon fed. Um, right. That soft skill of reading the group um, is, it's tough. You know, uh, that class, Ethan, that you were talking about, uh, it was a pretty varied group of people, uh, uh, you know, and uh, trying to serve all of them at once uh, can certainly be tricky. You know, you're always worried that that the the experienced people are going, oh, man, get on with it. And that the and that the unexperienced people are going, wait, wait, wait go back, go back, go back. Um, I find out that I'm worried about that more than is true, usually. Um, and and as long as you encourage people to be talking about what's going on to either ask the advanced question or ask to go back and cover something and, you know, rephrase it in a different way. Uh, most of the time, that's not an issue. Uh, but boy, sometimes that, that class was a bit of a stinker. We had a few things uh, going against us for that one. I think. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the other thing that I think helps a lot is, I mean, up until recently, you know, now the last 10 years or so, I've been purely doing this training and, and working more in management, style roles, but having gone through my career and having been in places where I had to run crews and had to, you know, when I was with Foy, you know, for years, I would just, you go to a venue and you meet a bunch of people and you do this thing and you make a team out of that group of people very quickly, you know, um, and having that skill as an instructor is, is paramount, you know, being able to take that, that group of different people and put them together as one group and realize you know, who's struggling, who can help the ones that are struggling, who's getting it, who to focus on, who not to focus on, you know, maybe this joke that I usually tell, I shouldn't tell that one because this group isn't, you know, there's, there's that whole skill set of being able to make cohesion out of that varied group that, that I think is really important as a trainer. Yeah. And it's definitely a good, 
you know, TDs have, uh, if you're a practice TD, that's a skill you have. And it, exactly. it definitely helps um, bringing that, that skill set into the training world. I think it also helps to establish pr- pretty early on that for the experienced riggers, you acknowledge that they may, we're going to cover stuff that they, they think they know inside out, but you try to communicate that. Hopefully they also recognize there may be some small, very simple concept that they haven't thought about in a long time that they might become familiar with again, and that that will make them that much better. Um, I think the ultimate goal is to, to articulate that if you go into it with eyes wide open, you can learn something from even the most uh, mundane information. Um, it it may be negative learning. It may be, hey, this is so boring. I don't want to do this. You may t- learn something from that negative experience is what I'm trying to say. But um, there's always opportunity is the point. Right. And I think that's where the, the skilled instructors can articulate that early on to kind of, kind of say, here's how this process is going to work. And if you buy into it, I guarantee you that you're going to learn something. It may be one thing. Um, and I tell people that none of our trainings in person are particularly inexpensive to say. Um, why would someone with years and years of experience pay several hundred dollars to do a class if you're only going to learn one new thing? Well, that one new thing that costs you four or five, six hundred dollars to learn could save your life at some point. Um, so to me, it's worth it. Right. Another value add that I think uh, I'm seeing a lot with uh, the current situation um, is that sometimes we're not teaching people to give them the facts. We're teaching them so they see what good teaching of those facts looks like Um, that we have. I have a lot of university uh, staff in classes um, and even, you know, experienced riggers. One of the takeaways, and I will push this at them uh, when I am trying to sort of you know, give them the context of the class is to say, look, even if you know all this stuff, let's talk about how you teach this stuff to some people. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, that idea of spreading that around because most of this knowledge um, is, you know, think about how many folks are going to be talking to someone else about how to do the thing that we're talking about. Um, I think that that's another aspect that that we can do is by modeling the way that we teach it. Um, that's helping people understand how they can go off and and spread that knowledge around too. So it's kind of interesting. You made me think about for years, I've had a, a a definition of knowledge and wisdom, which is roughly that knowledge is the knowing of facts. Wisdom is the knowledge of knowing how to use those facts. Um, And that in instruction, there's the teaching of knowledge but we are in part teaching wisdom when to use that knowledge. Risk assessment is not a science per se. I know there are some people who would argue and say it is absolutely a science, but there's a judgment call at some point when you do a risk assessment. And a lot of that isn't just based on knowledge, but on the wisdom of how to apply that knowledge. Um, So I think good instructors, you know, it's not just the data but it's the, the full package, right? Well, that, that idea of, uh, of risk tolerance, right? Not that, that we, you know, risk assessment, it, of course, is a bit of an art and you, it has to be personal and all that. But the idea that we have different risk tolerance in different situations, to me, is one of the hardest things to get across to an audience. 
because um, it sounds or it can sound like, oh, you mean that rule doesn't apply? <laughs> um, and trying to understand, trying to get the seriousness of and of both sides of it that um, sometimes you go black and white. That's the way we're going to deal with this because we are absolutely sure uh, that our risk tolerance says we should be very, very careful. But also recognizing that there is efficiency on the other end where you say, I have a little bit greater tolerance for risk here so I can attend to this problem in a different way. And it's very hard to communicate that idea without saying, yeah, throw the rules out the window and just do what you want. Um, so it's um, I, to me, that's one of the hardest concepts to get across. So where do you guys see the industry going um, in the short term? Um, are you guys concerned at all about because of the amount of online or virtual training that we've created that are you concerned that getting back to in-person training is going to be a slow process? And I'm not talking about whether or not we're allowed to get groups of more than five, right. 10, 15 together, but in terms of the desire for people to say, you know what, I'm going to go do this in person versus well, why can't I keep doing it online? I don't have to pay the travel expense. It's not as expensive, et cetera, et cetera. I think that so I think that coming out of this, there's going to be a few challenges. Um, and, and one, honestly, is going to be budgets, right? There, there's not going to be for a while the budget to do what we used to do for the foreseeable future, I think. Um, I, I could be wrong, but I think that's something that um, probably won't be there. Um, however, looking past that, I think that what we've all discovered is that I think there's always going to be, from here on out, a place for this online content. I think I think this is here to stay. I don't see this going anywhere. Um, however, uh, we do teach and work in a world that is tactile, and it's not it's not bits and bytes. It's shackles and steel and and slings and beams and fall arrest and all that stuff that you still need to touch and feel. And I, you know, how do I know if you're putting on the harness correctly? virtually i mean you know how can i how can i really see that you know how do i know that that you're doing xyz correctly without me seeing you do it um i think there's some space where we could be creative and do some of those things but i think there has to be i, I don't think there's a way of getting a getting away completely from that in-person um training in my opinion i think there's something to that that you can't replace Will, will we still do a lot of this that we're doing now? Yes, I, I think so. It's like you said, it's more cost effective. The, the, the delivery system is fairly simple. People can do it on their own time if we do it recorded. I mean, there's so many ways to make that flexible. But I, I think that, that there will always be a place, at least I hope, for that, uh, that, that in-person tactile um, kind of setting. Yeah, I mean, I know that we were surprised at how well the online training worked, right? That was the, the big thing for me is to go, wow, why didn't we think of this before? We've always been very reluctant to do online or video training things because the interaction that you have in a classroom is really important. Um, and like I said, reading the room, you can see when people have it or don't have it, um, whether it's that they put their harness on backwards or that they're just sitting there uh, looking dumbfounded. But uh, so, you know, as Eric said, we have to have a hands-on component for some things. You have to be in the room. And 
one thing that's been interesting to me is talking to folks who've been in our online trainings. Um, many of them have said, all right, when can we get you out here? When can we get you, uh, you know, as soon as we can do this, let's get you out for an in-person training. Um, one of the things about online training that I've, that has been really nice is that is the degree to which it seems like the trainer is talking right to you, right? When we do our free classes, um, we put 120 people in those free classes and each of those people feels like they're like, I'm talking right to them. Right. As opposed to in a classroom, if you had 120 people there, are, there's physical distance problems. Right? right. And so how do you, uh, you know, you, you couldn't do that. And so one thing uh, with our, we're really thrilled. We've been able to get that many people free training all at once. And that, that's a tool that this is fantastic for. Um, at the same time, um, you do lose some of that conversational aspect because some people just aren't going to talk uh, and it's easy for others to dominate the conversation. Um, and so, I mean, that's always true. It's true in a classroom too, but in a classroom, you, it's easier to sort of go, hold on a sec, let's, let's attend to this. And you can see when people are trying to talk, which you can't really do online. So uh, we have already, you know, we were surprised by the success of it and have already started to transition to uh, making it a permanent part of our offerings. Uh, we are shifting our class schedules a bit and uh, bringing in some of our other trainers to do things in part to stabilize it as a long-term solution. I think it is really important uh, as, a, as a possibility. Also, it's going to be a while before people are back up and, and lots of folks are still looking for something to do in this downtime. But I don't think you ever get away from live training. Uh, you know, we can kind of approximate it by putting somebody in front of a counterweight system, but obviously there's so many things that we do that you just can't show that. And it's not the same as having somebody stand up and do it themselves. So I don't think we'll yeah. ever get rid of it. I think budget will be an issue. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said. And, you know, you look at um, what a lot of the conferences are starting to look at doing now, you know, doing hybrids of in-person and virtual conferences now. And so I think that there's going to be a lot of precedent for doing more blended type of environments, you know, doing, you know, maybe we do a course where it's it's portion of it is online and then we, we come out for a day or two to to supplement uh, with hands-on, you know. So there's there's so many ways that we can, there's so many ways that this has made us be able to think a little more creatively about how we deliver content now. Because the other thing is, as Ed said earlier in the podcast is, you know, there are, there's a lot of people that want training and there's simply not enough training. So in a way, this is great, right? Because we can reach so many more people. So many more people can have access to it. That's wonderful. Um, but we still, like I said, still have to have that, that hands-on part, I think. Absolutely. The nice thing about training is there's always, there's always new students coming into the industry. There's always young people coming in who need to learn. And so it's a renewable resource for us as instructors. This is where I would ask a question if I had one. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have any questions? I mean, any questions that you would pose to each other or to me? Oh, that's a good, that's a good one. Um, hold on. Let me think about this. Well, I, 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 I do have one that maybe we could work into this is like, what's, what's the, your favorite training that you've done? Like, what is the favorite class that you've done? Mm. You know, I'm sure each of us has a favorite. I know I do. Yeah, certainly. Um, hard to pick one, actually. I think that there've been a lot of really fun experiences. 
Um, you know, some groups uh, just really gel. Um, I have, I, I, part of the reason I talk about those high steel rigging classes is that I really enjoyed those uh, the couple times that I have uh, been a part of them because getting, watching people literally, you know, it's cool when they get it with the math. It's even cooler when they get it out on a beam and they suddenly realize this is something they're good at. Um, also followed slightly behind by people realizing out on the beam that it's something they're not good at and it's not their thing. And right. then they go back to being happy about being ground riggers, um, which is a its own kind of a renewal. So, um, you know, I love that. I also, I tell a story about the Iroquois theater fire um, and in Chicago and, and how it led to a bunch of our life safety code and, and things like that and about how quickly uh, a theater fire can be a dangerous situation. And I love telling that story to high school students, uh, mostly because it scares the heck out of them. And it's a little bit cruel, but uh, it's um, it gets their attention, to be sure. So um, yeah. I guess that's my answer. Yeah, I really enjoyed doing the uh, the arena classes. That's something that uh, once we get out of this, that hopefully we'll be able to get back to. I've also, I, I really dig doing... Um, you know, who knows where this company is going to be on the other side of this, but Cirque du Soleil for their tour has been doing their crimping and splicing training for the last few years. And that's been a lot of fun because you go into a very tight knit community and um, you get to be a little part of their lives for a couple of days. And it's um, that that's always a lot of fun. Um, and obviously the travel part of it, going to all these neat places that they're at. But uh, yeah, it, it is. I even asked the question and you're right. It is hard to pick. You know, they all have their own little personalities, their own little qualities. They're all, it's like your children. You don't want to say which one's your favorite, although you might have one, shouldn't admit it. <laughs> well, that idea of stepping into a community, um, you know, one of the things that we do at Firehouse is a lot of training on cruise ships. And those are really insular communities, um, but they're also communities where the people are shifting constantly. So when you come in as a new person, they're used to welcoming you in. They're used to bringing new people in kind of on a daily basis. And so you can really jump. If you get a good group of folks there, you can jump right into their world and and really be a part of what they're doing for a week or so. And then uh, and that is a lot of fun. That's when it's right, when it's wrong. And it's a kind of a toxic environment that can be not a lot of fun. But um, when it's when you can join a vibrant community like that and, and be brought into it very quickly, that is quite a rush. I think one of my favorite trainings has been the very first one that I did, which uh, was in York, Pennsylvania. I had I'd been working with Rocky Paulson for years. He brought up the fact that he thought I should start doing trainings. He thought I would be good at it. And I had a friend of mine who works for a company uh, in that area. So we were like, yeah, there's a need. Let's put together our trainings. We had, I think, 40 or 45 people. Um, and as Ed has mentioned, there's the self-confidence issue. Is everyone going to think I'm a fraud? Do I really know what I'm talking about? And as we got into it, we did it for a three-day class. Um, it was, you know, I became more comfortable with it. I freely admit it took me a day to teach the math, which is now about four hours of my class of a two-day class. Just because of my ability to teach the concepts, I got better at it. But the reason it's one of my funnest classes is one of the people who attended the class works for a significant manufacturer. And of course, I was like, oh, geez, this guy's going to, you know, see right through me. Turns out, very nice guy. He was actually um, 
Cyberhoist US is who he had worked for. And at the end of day one, he's like, hey, so my shop's only about 20 miles away. How about I bring some Cyberhoist over and we can play with them at the end of one day? And I was like, yes. So now instead of just we're teaching these concepts and we had a ground support structure it was in a theater so we're on stage we built a ground support structure to do some fall rescue training we ended up hanging a bunch of uh, cyber hoists and allowing him to demonstrate how they work and for most of these people fixed speed chain hoists were all they ever had experience with so now we had all this fun and we we have video of moving a, a truss at 180 feet per minute and coming down and, and depressing the tab on a Coke can. Um, this is a lot of fun. So for me, that's a special one because it was the first one and it wasn't quite what I thought it would be, which was a good thing. Um, I've also really enjoyed when I've been able to train with other people, uh, a roof school where I get to teach with uh, Elmer or a trust, another trust manufacturer, and then the engineering is done by Clark Reader Engineering. It's a lot of fun because then you can play off of each other. You can um, refer to each other when people ask difficult questions. It's it's nice to be able to use that team effort to get people the most accurate information. Yep, agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. So. Have we killed it? I was gonna hey, say, yeah. got, I don't have any jokes, so. <laughs> what? Uh, I was going to say, it, I, the question is still going to ask, which is, I guess, I guess, to give you a little more time, Ed, I'll ask Eric first. I, Eric, don't have a jo- I do not have a joke. I'm terrible with jokes. I'm bad. Bad with jokes. Mm-hmm. Could never remember them. Terrible you guys, You guys call yourself instructors, and you don't have any jokes. Hey, safety is serious, man. <laughs> yeah. Right, so you're gonna uh, you're, you're gonna leave it to me to tell the joke. Apparently so. Sorry, audience. All right. Here we go. What did the rigor say at the crucifixion? I don't know. I could have done that in two points. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Now that we've alienated half of our audience. Yeah. Good job there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a talent. All right. Well, thank you guys. Uh, it, I'll, I'll start with you, Eric. Any uh, closing comments or thoughts? No, no. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. This has been a, it's been a lot of fun. It's fun to, to chat with, uh, with you and it's fun to chat with Ed again um, and rekindle that, uh, that relationship. And um, no, I, you know, I, I, being part of this this group is is a lot of fun. It's great knowing that there's other people out there that care about this part of the industry as much as I do. Um, and no, thanks a lot. It's been fun. How about you, Ed? Uh, I, I'm going to echo that exact same sentiment. Um, I am thrilled to be a part of the podcast and uh, thrilled that you are doing these conversations. I think they're really useful conversations. I was uh, I got very excited as I started to listen through them um, just at the idea that the conversations were happening and that that we're getting that out there for people to hear. Um, And uh, also that idea that that there are other people out there that I can talk about training with. um, I view this. I I think about it a lot uh, because I because I really do. I I feel like I have a duty to do this well because 
I have the ability to do it well. And so finding ways to continue to improve and to just sort of consider what good training looks like. Um, those are kind of few and far between uh, when I get to do it with other people. And so I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, I appreciate both of you coming on and sharing your expertise. As we've discussed, I, I've learned a lot from both of you. I learn a lot from everyone I get to interact with. And I think it helps build our community, giving people knowledge. And, and honestly, we all like to talk. It's fun to talk and it's fun to connect. So thank you that for spending true. some time with uh, me and, uh, you know, all six of my listeners. So with that, again, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger.